Week 21, it will cost you. Last week, we took a look at David's last words. Uh, most accurately, uh, it was referred to as his last song. It was his last song he wrote. It was the last words that we would read from him um, before he passes away, um, not too long from this chapter. Um, the song was all about what we called a leader's glory. It was a song that gave credit to God, saying, the reason I became a great king the reason I got to this uh, status of wealth and honor and all these things is all because of God raising me up, God anointing me for a task, and I'm going to give God all credit for it. Amen? That is the call of all of us. Your glory in rising up comes from solely giving God all credit and allowing him to do what he wants to do in you and through you and with you. And we've seen David throughout this entire series in all of his glory and the triumphs. We've also seen him through major pitfalls. Uh, we have seen that David has messed up over and over and over and over. And you would think that in the story, you know, the way the Bible is, you would think that after he wrote a whole song about how great uh, God is, that he would be good and we wouldn't see anything else. But lo and behold, as the pattern of David, after he writes his last words, guess what he does? He messes up again. <laughs> he messes up. Can we turn the overhead lights up a little bit or something up there? It's, it's, a, it's, it's like depressing looking out here. Um, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, yeah, those. Thanks. That's perfect. Y'all look so beautiful. It's like a reflection of me. Um, <laughs> well, David messes up again. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I think about sin and I think about the gravity of it, I always tend to think of two issues or two sides that the church takes. Side one, which a lot of modern churches take now, I think, unfortunately, is, well, sin happens and we should just have grace to allow it and don't judge people, just look at yourself. And there's almost like there's no sort of um, uh, accountability for sin. We just kind of say, well, Jesus saved me from it, so he's okay if I mess up in it. And then you have the other side where it's like sin happens and we need to tear people apart when they sin and expect perfection and have no grace. It's kind of like th those are the two sides we have in the church. We have the super grace message, and then we have the, well, Jesus saved you, but it don't count. <laughs> That's kind of like the two polar opposites we have in the church. And the reason we have those reasonings is because we have some specific scriptures. We have scriptures like 1 John 1, 9 that says this, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from wickedness. That's a, great, that's a great truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he forgives. You also have Romans 3.23, a very popular scripture. For everyone has sinned and has fallen short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. If you didn't know that, God has made you right. The older version is God has made you unto righteousness. You are in right standing with the Father. It says he did this through Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. You are in right standing. You don't earn right standing. Okay? You get it. Jesus, I am yours. I'm in right standing because you have made me that way. But then we have other scriptures. Like Proverbs 10.9. People with integrity walk safely, but those who follow crooked paths will be exposed. 
I have read that scripture at times in my life and froze in fear. <laughs> like, ooh, what, what you, God, what you mean expose? <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't want the people to know my business. And then you got scriptures like Romans 6, 15 through 16 that says this. Well, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? That's the super grace message, right? But look what, uh, of course not. Let me just read that again. God's grace sets you free. Does that mean we can go on sinning? Nope. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Because you are in a state of right standing, so God says, I'm going, to allow you to, I'm going to allow you to choose a lifestyle that brings you into what I see you as or away from what I see you as. And what I see you as is a righteous, pure, clean vessel that walks into life, or you can sin, which leads you to a place of death and apart from me and in total darkness. Because we get this kind of false idea that if I just get saved, I'm good. But Jesus says, the altar is easy. You come to me and you say you believe in me. That's why he says I'm the door. He says, I want you to walk through the door and then make some sacrifices to live a life worthy of the door you just walked through. It's not just, Jesus, I want to get saved. And as I think about what this story is, I think about the church of 2020, and I think we've got a lot of things wrong. We celebrate how many people we baptized last year, and we don't begin to talk about how many people actually grew past baptism. We, we, we throw numbers out like we, we, this many people got saved and Jesus is like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people that say they knew me, but I'll say I never knew them. But for some reason, that's become the standard of what is successful ministry. Even in talking with the creative team at, at our meeting this week, I said when we talk about the, the report from 2019, I don't, I don't want to focus on how many did this. I want to focus on look at the, the, the internal growth of this church. And I'll go ahead and tell you one big win is that most churches, you, you, know, you say you have 100 people, usually 20 or 30 involved. We had almost 70% of the people in our church involved in more than just a Saturday night worship experience. That's huge to me because it shows people are hungry. But this is what we've kind of rested our faith on is just Jesus and salvation. And Jesus is like, let me tell you how insignificant I am. I'm going to come for three years leave and say you're going to do more than I did. <laughs> so you've got two sides. This grace frees us and there's life in God and then there's sin enslaves you. And if you don't obey God, it's going to lead to death. Both principles are on the other side of Jesus in the New Testament. This is truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the reason we go, to, the reason we go through him is so that we can even access the Father. Uh, we were having a conversation at home campus 
uh, last week, and, and they, we, they were t- we were talking about different religions and different ways, and they asked, you know, about Catholicism versus Christianity. And I said, well, if you want to look at it in a roundabout way, Catholicism has got some sort of practice right. And, and just listen to me for a second, because I'm going to tell you where they're incomplete. They understand that at one time we were not worthy to approach God. So they put this person in stead called a priest. That is why in the Catholic Church you go confess your sins, not to God, but to a priest. Because at one time there was only the high priest that could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. Where the Ark of the Covenant stayed in the tabernacle. Okay? But Jesus comes in, and this is the incompletion of such religions like the Catholic Church, as he says, I'm going to make you all priests so that now you have the same access as that one high one did once a year. You get access every day. And he's no longer going to live in a box. He's going to live in you. So there's reasonings why there's those things in religion. Okay, And we have to understand that if we're, if we're going to really be people who understand our faith. Okay, So we have this picture that we come to God freely. He saved us from our sins. But then when we talk about this idea that it will cost us, we tend to go back a little bit. Because we say, why would it cost us if Jesus paid the price? So, to understand this chapter and understand this concept tonight, I'm going to read two verses out of alignment before we read the whole thing verse by verse. Okay? Are y'all, is this interesting? Okay. Verse 1. Once again, I've seen that too many times in the story of David. Y'all ever had that moment, like, you hear about someone sinning, and you're like, they did it again. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. Now that verse messed me up and I could not get past it for two days. Because look at it. It says, God was angry with Israel and he told David to harm the people. The reason God is angry at Israel is because David was harming the people. So I don't get that. Well, let's skip to verse 10. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking the census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. Here again, nine verses later, we see that David's getting conviction about the thing that verse 1 seems to say that David was doing. Verse 1 says the Lord told him to take a census, and now in verse 10 it says the Lord's like, hey, you sinned because you took a census. Now, let me get something straight, and let's make this clear. If you obey God, you do not sin. So if David is getting conviction and the Lord is telling you you have sinned, then what the heck happened in verse 1? But what we do is we skip over it and we don't dive into it 
And we don't try to explain it because sometimes it's just too difficult. But I think that the bread of life, I'll chew that thing up as long as I need to to digest it. So that's exactly what I did. If you go on to read other versions, can we put that verse 1 back up real quick, guys, just so we can have it as context? If you read verse 1 again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He caused David to harm them and taking his sentences. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. In other versions, it actually says it a little different because all versions try to translate original text. Okay, And a lot of versions say something to this effect. It's when it says the Lord told him, it's, it says specifically that that's what David thought, so that's what he said to the people. So, that, so David thought, the Lord told me to take a census, so as leaders tend to do, they go to their people and say, God told me something. And one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten as a, as a pastor and as a leader, it came from a, a person in this church who's, who's not here right now. Um, he was, his name's Jacob Brown. Um, y'all can pick on him later. He, he, he already taught me he had to go real quick. He'll, he'll be back tomorrow morning. He said, you know, Kyle, one thing about you is you, you don't say God told you a lot. He says, when you do say it, I take it very seriously because I know you don't casually use it. And I think a lot of people use that term way too casual. And, and, and I, I just get tired of hearing people, God told me this, God told me that, God told me, God told me, God told me. And it's like you do realize you have a mind, right? And that it's continually at war with God. And in your flesh, sometimes you hear wrong. So you've got to always check what God told you. Be careful to say that or use that phrase. <laughs> so, but this is what David's doing. God told me to take a census. David was convinced that God told him. But we get another account in the book of Chronicles. Because in the book of 1 Chronicles, it actually mirrors the story we're reading in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. It's almost the same thing. And look what 1 Chronicles 21.1 says. It says this. Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a sense of the, of the people of Israel. Little Bible study lesson. Always follow capitalizations and cross-reference scripture. Because if you go back at what we read in 1 Samuel uh, 24.1, the he in that context is not capitalized. And in scripture... When you capitalize a he or a him or a the, it's referring to God. Well, can you throw it back up? I know you're going backwards. Just it said, look, look at it. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, that he is not capitalized. It's not giving credit that God caused David. It's Satan caused David. One thing about Scripture is that Scripture is never meant to fit your purpose. It's meant for you to fit in God's. And that's why there are so many bad teachings and false alliterations out there is because we take Scriptures like that and twist it for our benefit instead of studying this stuff. Y'all with me? Okay, I know it's slow, but it's going to get good. Just let me build this. So we find that Satan told David to take a census. And I thought, well, what's so bad about a census? I mean, that's like what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. You know, uh, Caesar, uh, uh, Augustus, or whoever it was, uh, 
you know, I, I don't know my Bible. I'm just a pastor. And he, he, he's, he says, hey, I'm going to take a census, and it caused Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. Like, what's, what's wrong with a census? Let's look at Exodus 30, verses 11 to 13, because it talks about a census. Then the Lord said to Moses, that's key. Leave that up there for a minute. Then the Lord, then the Lord said to Moses, if there was going to be something, a census taken, there had to be two things you had to follow. You took a census of what you owned. Moses did not own the people of Israel. And neither did David. So the only one qualified to say take a census was the owner. Who is the owner? God. He created the heavens and the earth. He owns everything. When the, when, when the Bible refers to us and Jesus as he is the king, capital K, of little k kings, what that means is God says, I own it all, and you are my kingdom authority to steward it. So stop blaming God when stuff don't happen and start looking at yourself. God didn't do it. And on the other side of stuff's not happening, don't blame God. It's you're not doing something. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have a responsibility to move heaven to earth. Because he says, I bought back the keys of the kingdom and put the authority in your hands, so I'm going to leave and you're going to do greater things than I ever dreamed about. Words of Jesus. So we got to shift some things. We got to do some things. That's why we're developing a lifestyle of prayer and fasting this year. I've said it before, but the Bible says mustard seed faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. But only by prayer and fasting can you cast out this demon. This is the false teaching. All you need is faith of the mustard seed. No, no, no. The faith the size of a mustard seed will accomplish a lot, but there's some things that you need more than the faith of the size of a mustard seed. It's all in here. So to take a census, you had to own it. God owned it. And the Lord said to Moses, look at verse 12, whenever you take a census of the people of Israel, each man who is counted must pay a ransom for himself to the Lord. Then no plague will strike the people as you count them. Each person who is counted must give a small piece of silver as a sacred offering to the Lord. This payment is half a shekel based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. Each man in a census had to pay a ransom for himself. The reason God had Moses taking a census was because Moses was in the middle of building something. What was he building? He was building a tabernacle. So God says, let me move you to take a census because even though I'm God, you still need money to buy the materials to build what I've told you to build. That's why I used to be timid about things like dream big. But God just opened my eyes one day and said, look here, man. You need two things to accomplish stuff, people and resources. When I move you to ask, ask. But if I don't move, don't ask. This is where Moses is at. This is where David was not. Because David just sang a song in the previous chapter about all his glory. His kingdom was in the best time. 
You had the tabernacle for the Lord and the, the tent. David was in this palace of cedar. You got tons of people. The kingdom is unified. He ain't got no need. So it wasn't God that moved David. It was something else that moved him. And Chronicle says it was Satan. Because the only power Satan has over your life is the power of suggestion. Stop blaming the devil. The devil did not do it. You did it. You came into agreement with a thought that came into your mind. It's never Satan's fault. I, I'm, I'm going to stop giving him credit. Because that's what you do. Satan did it. Don't, don't, don't give him that glory. You did it. Submit it and give it to God. Something was suggested to David. So David, in all of his glory, in the best years of his life, said, let me get more from the people. There's a parable that Jesus teaches about in Matthew 13 about the farmer sowing seed. And at the very end of the parable, when Jesus is explaining the kingdom principle, because the, what parables are, they were nursery rhymes to motivate people. And he explained what they meant to his disciples because he knew that the people really didn't want him. They just wanted a healing session. They just wanted a, a good word from that Jesus guy. They didn't want life. They didn't want sacrifice. And when Jesus got tired of them, he said, all right, y'all eat my body and drink my, drink, drink my blood. And they were like, see ya. So look at what he explains. He says, Matthew 13, 22. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but they too quickly, the message is crowded out by two things. So you hear the word Saturday nights or Sundays, and then it can quickly be drowned out because of two things, the worries of life or the lure of wealth, the lure of gain. The preacher told me to give this up, but I've got too much to lose. So, no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produces a harvest of 30, 60, or 100 times as much as it had been planted. God wants you to produce. His whole kingdom system is always about producing. And we've been scared of that in the church because we've had a lot of people manipulate that for the wrong thing. You know, like if you, know, if you, you sow your $30 seed and you get a 30-fold return, buy your $10 anointing oil so that you can get healed by the tap water in the, in, in the, in the plastic container and you'll get your healing. That's what that has turned into. But let's not let the manipulation of man take away the truth from Scripture. He wants you to be productive and he wants you to do things and he wants you to increase. But the reason people don't increase, it says, of people who hear the word is two things. You're either lured by wealth or the worries of life quenches it from you. So David is at the top of his game. He just took a personal time to write a song about all this glory 
And he's thinking about all his glory. And then all of a sudden a thought comes in. You know, if you just take a little census, you know how much more you get? And let's be honest, that's what life has become. Whether it's government or church or family or needy or whatever it is, it's if you give me a little, I'm going to take advantage to get more. And that's where David's at. He has just taken a personal inventory and is like, maybe I, God? Did you? Yeah, you know what? Uh, if you need me to get some more money, if you need me to take a census, God, I guess so. But then my question becomes this, and I know this maybe isn't my usual teaching style, but I feel like this is just something good for this year that I, thought, I started to think, why didn't God warn David that the enemy was about to tempt him? I like to preach full circle. I don't want anyone leaving with any questions. Like, what? Like, like, come on, God. Like, why didn't you let David know that a temptation was coming? Look at Romans 8.28. We know that God causes everything, everything, to work together for the good of those who love God and called according to the purpose for them. God can even use Satan in various ways. He did it to Job. How? Because if Satan tempts you and you fall, it reveals what you need refining and discipleship in. It reveals your weakness and your disobedience. Why does Satan have the ability to suggest things? Because God has one purpose. I want to refine you. I see you as pure and perfect and unto righteousness. So in order to get you there, because you might be right here, I've got to find out every weak place in you. So if that fallen angel tempts you when you fall, I'll use that for my good and refine you in that area because now it's exposed. The crooked path of a man will be exposed so that I can refine you in the fire of life. God allowed Satan to tempt him. David sinned and it revealed his pride and then God's about to deal with it. Because God's objective is always to bring you closer to him into that reality of cleanliness and purity. And in order to become clean and pure, even though he already paid the wage to make you that way, if you continue to walk in a path of disobedience after your knowledge of Jesus, it will cost you something. Y'all ready? Okay. I'm 30 minutes in. I got 45 minutes to go. <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe. Verse 1. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He caused David to harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a census of all the tribes of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south so that I may know how many people there are. Not so that God will get glory, but so I know how many people I've got. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now, but why, my Lord the king, do you want to do this? Joab wasn't afraid to speak to David on how he thought it was wrong. 
So he honored him in the confrontation and asked him to consider, David, maybe you've got something off. And look how he honored him. He says, David, I want your kingdom to be blessed. I want you to increase. But would you consider that the way you're going about the increase could be wrong? And sometimes in confronting someone else, it's going to cost you your pride. Because you may have to speak a blessing and the promise of God over someone that you think doesn't deserve it to expose what they're doing wrong. Because you're trying to suggest, listen, I want you to have more. God wants you to have more. He wants us to produce 30, 60, 100 times. But could it be that the way you're trying to get the 30, 60, 90 fold blessing is you're going through a completely wrong process? Riches is not the issue. It's the obsession of it. And when we get obsessed with it and when we get uh, mesmerized by it, we start to go through all these processes that are wrong. David's in a place where he was almost looking at all the stuff and he goes, let me get more without ever consulting God about it. David's issue was he wanted more. Joab's like, man, I want you to have more, but this is the wrong way. Producing more is not bad, but you must surrender that process under the command of God and be obedient to how he wants you to produce it. Everything about the Bible and everything in his kingdom is always about more. So why do we question the process when it looks like less? We want more money to survive, but we question the, the idea of a tithe. And yet you complain when you're not finding out more, and then you blow up social media, why am I not experiencing more? This year is already horrible. My 2020 starting in February. Why, 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 why? And it's, and it's like, you're not working these principles. Y'all know y'all seen those posts. <laughs> you're not working this stuff. And we're asking God where he's at, and he's like, I've laid it out for you in many translations in black and brown and blue and purple and red and, and soft and hardback. What are you not getting? It's even on your phone now. <laughs> no, it hurt. Verse 4, but the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab and the commanders of the army went to count the people of Israel. Look at that. They still went and did it. They honor their leader. And sometimes when you're under a leader in your life who is seeking God, you got to take the good and you got to take the bad. And I don't think we should ever be obedient to sin. But sometimes you may think, man, you might be going around about this a little wrong. I don't know about this. But if they're truly seeking God, trust that God will refine what they're doing. I've gotten it wrong. When we started Relentless, I had a goal to become the next megachurch. I, I remember me and Ryan and Chelsea used to talk about, we're going to be the next elevation. And then after a year of only 40 people, we were like, maybe, maybe, maybe something ain't right but, <laughs> about, about this because uh, 40 people's on a good day. <laughs> and I realized I had gotten something. I was casting a vision that was made by Kyle and not by God. It was always to see people come alive in Christ. But what I was really trying to get is to see Kyle gain popularity of look at the next mega church and beat Pastor Stephen Burdick. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm real enough. That, that, 
But then when I got outside of that and God refined me, look at what's going on. So in verse 5, they crossed the Jordan, they camped at Aroer, south of the town in the valley in the direction of Gad. Then they went to Jazer, then to Gilead in the land of Tamagotchi, and to, <laughs> and to Don Juan, no, no, Don John, and around to Sidon. Then they came to the fortress of Tyre, all the towns of the Hibites and Canaanites. Finally, they went south to Judah as far as Beersheba, having gone through the entire land for nine months and 20 days. They, that's a lot of counting. They returned to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the people of the king. There were 800,000 capable warriors in Israel who could, camp, who could handle a sword and 500,000 in Judah. That's 1.3 million fighting men. Now, in Chronicles, it looks more like, I think, around four, like 4 million we're not really sure the count, but what is significant is that they only counted men back then. So you're looking at a population under David's leading of over 6 million people. Why is that significant? Because there was a time when that beautiful harp player escaped from Saul's clutches, and then at one point, all he had with him was 400 in a cave. And over his life in the falls and the obedience, he's gone from 400 people to 6 million. Tremendous growth. But God did not say to take account for it. Because God knew if David saw what he had, the obsession of more would begin to take over. Imagine, David, I've taken 400 men and built it to 6 million people. But in verse 10, it says, after he had taken the census, we read this in the beginning, his conscience began to bother him. He started saying to himself, oh, look at 6 million people, and iPhone rings. He said, he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly. By taking the census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. David realized, why am I taking the glory of God's kingdom for myself? Why, why am I doing this? And he's found himself in sin. And I believe this is significant because we're about to make some big increases in Relentless. And I believe that God's going to grow this church significantly this year. But we need to make sure we never get to this place where we're looking at the numbers and say, look what we did. Or this is relentless as glory. This is all for the glory of God. And there's never a reason to attribute anything else. It's not Pastor Kyle's a good pastor. It's we are all good stewards of what God has given us the ability to steward over under the direction of God. Because the fact of the matter is, in today's times, if you want to build a healthy church... You have a lot of money, you build a church. Maybe not healthy, but you build a church with a lot of people. There's tons of networks these days. You raise $60,000 and you guaranteed to launch your service with 200 people. And it works every single time. And some of those churches are legitimate. I'm not going to take away from that. Not everything is messed up. But that's not God's plan for everybody. 
That's not God's plan for every... God's taking us all in individual journeys. And for some reason, he led you to this house. So let's not begin to think it's because Pastor Kyle's a better teacher or they've got better worship or there's better prophets or there's better... No, no, no. We're just in love with him. And he's the one doing it. He's the one adding he is, he, he, it's all God's glory. This is God's church. This is not Kyle's church. This is not Relentless's. This, this is God's. Is this all right? And I would imagine this pleased God when David said, man, I've sinned. God, I have sinned against you. You know why? Because it goes back to what God wants. He says, David is a follower of me, he's a seeker of me, and I want to get him to walk in the purity that I see. So let me refine you, because I just saw that you fell to the lures of wealth. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on him, he will answer you, and he will save you. But let me open your eyes to what we're about to dive into. When you act in disobedience after being saved, It'll cost you. So look at what it cost him. The next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. And let me just say something there. Sometimes the thing it will cost you may come through another member of the body of Christ. So be humble enough to receive when the word comes to you. You're not better to where you're the only person who gets God to talk to you. We are the body of Christ, and it, we cannot function apart. So if someone's got a word from you, it's to better you, not harm you, not put you down. This word came through David's prophet, the seer, Gad. And this was the message in verse 12. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three choices. Sounds like a, a daddy, right? I'm going to give you three choices, son. Choose one of these punishments, and I will inflict it on you. Can, now, don't go, don't go for it. Can you imagine David in that moment? He just sinned. He realized he listened to Satan, and God's like, I'm about to give you three choices, and it will happen. <laughs> like, oof. So, Gad came at David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine through your land, He's already been through that. Three months of fleeing from your enemies. He's been through years of that. Or three days of a severe plague throughout your land. I wish we had like, like, y'all remember that show, um, Millionaire? And you could like, the audience could, I wish we had that in church. I'd like to find out which one would you choose. <laughs> you know, you got three years of famine three months of running from the enemies, or three days of a severe plague. Think this over and decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. Talk about a need for a prayer life. Can you imagine David? Like, he's taking his senses, and then he confesses his sin, and God's like, well, it's, it's still going to cost you. See, we don't like that side of, of God. We, don't, we, don't, we think, well, Jesus paid for our sin, so that's it. Jesus paid for our sin, and I have no responsibility. 
Uh, God's like, listen, even after Jesus, if you choose disobedience, it leads to death. It leads to less. It leads to decrease. It leads to you not producing. I don't want that. And if you want to get out of it, it's going to cost you something. And I'm going to lay out to you at the end of this exactly what it will cost you. And don't worry, it's it's a good cost. But can you imagine David? Famine, war, plague. So this is David's, and I want you to think about what these three things mean. Because one, in three years of famine, it would have only affected one group or not affected one group. Because in a famine, you've got the poor who can't make ends meet and can't save any money. But then you've got the wealthy. And you know what the wealthy can do with three years of famine? Survive. So if he chooses famine, all the wealth, all the kings, all the royalty will not be affected by the punishment that God's going to inflict, but the poor will. Then you've got three months of war. That means mostly the only people that are going to get killed are who? The soldiers. See, you don't look into this stuff, do we? But then, he, but then he, but then look at the seemingly more severe one, the plague. It is no respecter of persons. It could affect anyone on any social level, any economic level, even David himself. So look at David's response in verse fourteen. I'm in a desperate situation. If I was Gad, I'd been like, "Yeah, no crap." Maybe a different choice of words. I don't know. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. But let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. I don't want to fall into the hands of people. I want to fall into the hands of my Lord. So I'm going to choose a thing that affects me equally. You know what he chose? He chose the three days of plague. And there's a truth in that because that seems why would God do this? But in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, it says, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you because the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. The Lord's correction is more merciful and just than anything. And even though that we know that sin will cost us, Maybe we just need to accept that whatever refining it is, it's the best way. Because the thing about being refined in a fire is you've got to burn the junk off. And we love this gospel that's all about Jesus forgives me, but when it talks about burning the junk off, we don't like that. But God's like, trust me. I may burn some things that you love, but it's the best way. So in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 24, it says, The Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died. Now remember, the Lord is just. 
and I began to wonder, why did God kill 70,000 people? You want to know why? Because Jesus hadn't come yet, and the wages of sin is. God cannot get out of his own decree. Death is the only thing that would pay for it. And it's just. 70,000 people died from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, Stop. That's enough. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aharana the Jebusite. Scripture tells us that God is perfect. And if God's ways are perfect, then we've got to trust that whatever he does and whatever he allows is also perfect. 70,000 died. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But what's interesting here is what we're about to see. Because just because your wage is paid don't mean it won't cost you something more. The wages of our sin to gain life is death. Jesus got on the cross and he paid the wage of death. In the same respect, in this plague, 70,000 people died. So the wage of sin was paid. But look at what happens next in verse 17. Is this, is this okay? When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned. I've done wrong. These people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. Death has been paid. But David's like, what will it cost me? And I think that we need to start taking this posture of the people of God of thank you, Jesus. You've paid the wage of death, hell, and the grave. But now that that wage has been paid, I'm the one who deserved it. What will it cost me? What do you want me to give up? What do you want to take from me? You want to take my appetite? You want to take my lust? You want to take my issues? You want to take my, my fleshly desires? What, what, do you, what is it going to cost me? What, what more do you want? Because think about it. The, 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 the Bible says we have to give up this and this and this. What is that? That is the cost on the other side of a paid wage. The wages of sin is death, but it will cost you more. And my God says the things that will cost you is for your benefit. It's for your good because the things that will cost you, I'm going to use it to refine you, to let you walk in purity and let you walk in light and let you walk as what I see you. I see you as right. I see you as clean. I, I see you as the light of me. I see you as my reflection. But the only way anyone else will is if you let me give you the cost. Live a life of sacrifice. Worship me and, and, do, and do as to others as, as I would have do unto you. Have no other gods before me. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't go do this. Don't go do that. He says, that's the cost. 
It's not you've got to do this to earn the wage. The wage has been paid, but there is still a cost. And if you walk in the disobedience of sin, there is going to be a cost. You reap what you sow. If you sow disobedience, it's going to cost you. So if you find yourself in a place where you have been doing all these things for God and then all of a sudden you sin and everything's going backwards, don't say God must not be real. You need to start saying, God, what will it cost? I have done this. we got to start taking some ownership. Amen. So this is what happens in the rest of the scripture, verse 18. I'm closing with this. That day, Gad came to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on that threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Remember, that's where the death angel stopped. So David went up to what the Lord had commanded him. And when Arana saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord, the king? Arana asked. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Stop right there. Think about what just happened. The promise of wealth caused him to listen to Satan to take a census. And the very thing that caused him to fall was going to be the very thing that would cost him. <laughs> Look at the cost. God said, you wanted more money when you didn't need it. So now it's going to cost you the money that you already have. I want you to lay down what you love, your wealth as a king, and buy a threshing floor that you don't need. The cost did not benefit David at all. It was wasted spending. He says, buy something that you don't need with the money that you already have and build me an altar. So look at verse 22. Take it, my lord, the king. Use it as you wish. That, that's, a, that's a good kingdom servant. He's like, no, no, no. You can have my threshing floor. I love you, King David. I know who you are. You're light. You, 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 you love God. You write beautiful songs. You led us out of captivity, out of desolate places, out of debt. You're amazing. You can take it. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing boards and ox yokes or wood to build a fire on the altar. I'll give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to Arana, no, because my sin, is, it, it has to cost me. So he says, no, 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 I insist on buying it. I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. And a lot of us give God that sacrifices don't, don't cost anything. That's not the kind of sacrifice he needs from you. He wants some costly sacrifice. He wants some time. He wants treasure. He wants submission. He wants your pride. 
He wants everything. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. And David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land. And the plague of Israel has stopped. And I want to close with just simply one thought for the night. Out of all this buildup. Is what if the plague of your life will cease when you start to build an altar of sacrifice? You're in this plague where it seems like everything is going wrong. It's like build up, build up, build up. I, I was overhearing conversations this week at different establishments of people saying this literal thing, which we've all said, does it ever end? They, they were saying things like, if it ain't one thing, it's another. And I was hearing this in the midst of studying for this. And God's like, I don't want plague on you. It grieves my spirit to see you go through the plague of your life. So I'm laying it out for you. Build me an altar. Make a sacrifice for me. A sacrifice and an altar that will cost you something. What if the very thing you're obsessed with, you could just turn it over to God and the plague would just stop? God, you get the altar of my relationships. I'm going to build an altar in the midst of my finances. I'm going to build an altar in the midst of my service. I'm going to build you an altar in the way I talk to people. I'm going to build you an, offer, an, an altar in how I serve at work. I'm going to build you an altar and sacrifice time so I can pray more. I'm going to sacrifice and build you an altar. And God says, that's all it's going to cost you. Because the wage of death, that's been paid. And everything that will cost you is much less than that wage. So let's become a people who will build him an altar of sacrifice and embrace the truth that it will cost you.